Gee, I hope I'm good today. Have you been bad in the past? Have I been? No. Should we start the show like this? Greetings out there in podcast land. This is Roscoe. I'm the sidekick to Gary Zabinski. Gary is the apple of my eye, the crown in my jewel. The crown in my jewel? The jewel in my crown. I I like that as the opening. Welcome, friends, to another episode of Booth One, where we celebrate popular culture through the art of lively conversation. I'm your host, Gary Zabinski, and I'm joined here in our studios, as pretty much always, by my favorite of Santa's elves, Little Roscoe. How's the toy making coming? Blixen has hoof and mouth disease, but we're <laughs> hoping that that he has about 12 days. Oh, it's about 12 days till Christmas. It, it is. As we, as we sit here and... Beautiful downtown Evanston. Hey, do you have an elf name? For myself? I'm going to give you an elf name. All right. The the first letter of your first name, Roscoe, is R. So your first name is Jingle. And what month of the year were you born in? March. Your last name is Plum Pants. <laughs> plum Pants. <laughs> Jingle Plum Pants. Hello, I'm Jingle Plum Pants, <laughs> world's largest elf. <laughs> Now, I was also born in March, so my last name, we're related in some way. My we, last we, yeah. name is going to be Plum Pants, but uh, my, 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 my first name, beginning with a G, is, it's not very interesting. It's Sunny. Sunny Plum Pants. <laughs> Sunny Plum Pants. <laughs> Welcome to Booth One with the Plum Pants. Now, if we were in the South, for instance, we'd have redneck elf names. Yes. <laughs> Your name, beginning with an R, your first name would be Cletus. Cletus. And your middle moniker would be the Evergreen. And what is the date of your birth in, in March? March, you know this, March 4th. It is March 4th. So your full name would be Cletus the Evergreen Inbreeder. That's your full name. Oh, my that's God. Your, your full redneck <laughs> name. <laughs> Mine, beginning with a G, would be Nutmeg the evergreen baby daddy. <laughs> oh my god. I'm not making this stuff up. What is, is that what is that from? Th- this is from the official redneck elf name generator. So I, I, I'm not making it up. I was unaware that that existed. Of, of course it exists. Oh, okay. Everything in the world exists. Everything exists. Much. Anything you can think of. Last time, we weren't sure if we were going to get another podcast to our listeners before Christmas, but we have some marvelous holiday material to share with everyone, so we made a very special effort to bring you yet some more pre-Christmas Booth One magic. What are you hoping for for Christmas this year, Roscoe? Have you made your list to Santa yet? A Christmas without tears. Can I get through Silent Night at church without weeping openly and having my mother tap me on the arm and go, stop crying? How do you, how do you suppose that Santa's going to deliver that to you? Uh, hopefully with a large selection of colorful hankies. <laughs> <laughs> what would I also like? Yeah, what would a you? A new home and a really big TV and a Blu-ray player. You you have a fairly large extended family. You should put the feelers out there now. Oh, my family would never buy me a large color television set. (laughs) Why not? (laughs) Because they don't like me very much. (laughs) (laughs) Well, then they're certainly not going to get you a Christmas without tears. It's going to be a lacrimose Christmas yet again. (laughs) A lacrimose Christmas. (laughs) (laughs) We should should write that. Write write that down. I'm going to write a song. I'm going to write a tune to that. yourself a lacrimose Christmas. I was watching a film the other day that I hadn't seen in a very long time, and I watched it from beginning to end, which is rare for me. I was watching Frank Capra's Meet John Doe. 
And in the middle of the film, there's a scene where John Doe has run off from the big city because he's fed up with how it's going. And he gets confronted by a bunch of people who have started these John Doe clubs. They're all about extending and helping hand to neighbors and bringing the milk of human kindness to just the common man. And this one actor goes on a very long, long monologue about how he's now seeing life and his neighbors and his neighborhood in a whole different light. He talks about one character who actually lives next door to him, and they would call him Sourpuss Smithers. That was his nickname. Oh. <laughs> but I thought we might, we might take uh, inspiration from Sourpuss Smithers and start a new segment where we air our pet peeves of the day. In our Sourpuss Smithers segment this week, I'd like to ask you, what's your latest pet peeve, Roscoe? My latest pet peeve has to do with Barack Obama. It's, Go on. It's pronunci- his pronunciation of the word to. We're going to, I would say, we're going to pass this bill. He says, we're going to, we're going to pass the bill. Ta. He has it's a always ta. Two. Yeah. It's two. The word is not ta. I think that's a Chicago pronunciation. Do you think it makes him sound less than well-educated? He doesn't sound like a Kennedy. I'll put it like that. <laughs> My other, I have a bigger pet peeve. Can I give two? You can. What not? What did you do this weekend? I did errands and whatnot. Well, no, you didn't. Whatnot are things like staples and paper clips and little things you find in a drawer. You have a whatnot shelf, a shelf full of little things. Whatnot is not an action. It's not a verb. It refers to, it's a noun. Hmm. So people do not do whatnot. So, I watch TV and whatnot. So both of your pet peeves have to do with people's speech this week. Yes, yeah. I'm dying to hear your latest pet peeve, of which there are many. Well, my latest pet peeve, and, and I'd like to... I'd like to blame it just on the holidays when things are crowded, but I've been experiencing this for quite some time. I can't go anywhere or go into any shop or any place of business without standing in line. There's always somebody else in front of me. Somebody's at the bakery. Somebody's at the ATM machine. Someone's at the hardware store. That's the hardware. I could walk into the hardware store and it could be completely empty. And by the time I'm ready to go up to the cash register, there's four people in line. I hate waiting. I, I, I don't know why everywhere we go, there have to just be people and people and people. Well, maybe it's because we live or choose to live in an urban environment. <laughs> Waiting in line, always standing behind people is my sourpuss smithers for the week. Hey, it's Frank Sinatra's 100th birthday today. Today? I believe it's today, yeah. Wow. I had a love-hate relationship with him. I didn't care for him as a human being. So did weight. Ava Gardner. Poor Ava Gardner. <laughs> I think, but I think he took care of her for the rest of her life. She lived in near penury in Paris towards the end. Precariously. Precariously. <laughs> she lived precariously in Paris. Let's talk about show business for a minute. Yes. Some things opened on Broadway, and I wanted to get your take on them. Uh, China Doll, for one, the David Mamet play starring our pal Al Pacino, which we've talked about numerous times on this podcast. It's been heading up towards mm-hmm. opening, and they've delayed mm-hmm. it, and they worked on the script. What did you think of the reviews on that, Roscoe? I'm sure the review was about ten times more entertaining than sitting through the show. <laughs> I, I thought it was the, the, one of the meanest reviews I've ever read in my life. It was pretty harsh. Uh, in the New York Times, for sure. In the New York Times review, yes. Uh, the Variety review was fairly dismissive. They didn't really go after uh, Al Pacino or David Mamet or the play. What's your feeling about this? This show is going to gross a million dollars a week. All the investors are going to make their money back. Are you Are you kind of offended by the fact that there's this star turn going on in New York that 
it's not very good, but people are showing up to it? Well, it's just depressing. I, you know, if I was Al Pacino, I would say, you know, do the production somewhere else, workshop it, get me a good script, and then I'll do the show on Broadway. But subjecting audiences to a script that's just apparently a bad script and a bad show is just seems wrong to me. How much do you think Pacino's making? I have no idea. Two hundred thousand dollars a week. Something. Something I, I was like going to say two fifty, two hundred and fifty thousand plus a percentage, mm-hmm. over a certain amount mm-hmm. of the gross. Yeah, and and the New York Times review said that his performance is baffling. He, he spends most of the time on the phone. It's very difficult to understand who he's talking to, what they're talking about. His performance is full of ticks and mannerisms and rush dialogue and slow dialogue and pauses. They said his, the subtext of what the character must be thinking is completely inscrutable. And that the whole, the entire review was about the only other actor in the show who has nothing to do and plays as administrative assistant. And they said, I'm like, you know, whatever this man is making, he deserves every penny yes. to, have to, to have to go through this excruciating experience yeah, eight shows was, a week. That's right. It was high praise for the other guy who just pretty much spends his time on the phone and, listen, and then listens to Al Pacino go off on some stuff. It was really hilarious. Uh, the other show, big show that opened, well, there were a couple, but uh, the other other big show that opened was The Color Purple. Now, you did see The Color Purple. I did see The Color Purple, and I'm not surprised by those reviews. And I don't think we talked about it at length on the show. I saw it some weeks ago. I saw the very just the fourth preview, the fourth time it was in front of the audience. Parts of it were all there. The leading actress had done the role in London and to great acclaim, and she blew the roof off that place. Jennifer Hudson was just, a, I wouldn't say wobbly, her performance wasn't quite there, but the woman has won an Academy Award, so she knows what she's doing. And apparently it's all there. I was thrilled to read that review in the New York Times. I'm sure it will be that will be the hottest ticket in town now. And that she found nuances in the character that you wouldn't expect and didn't know were there. And that she surprised you by, by pulling back. You understand that as self-assured as the character was in the movie, that she has some insecurities herself. And uh, so I thought it was a fascinating performance. She plays Suge, Suge Avery. Suge Avery. Yeah. We saw her perform on The Late Show with Stephen Colbert the other night. Yeah. The whole cast was out there, and I guess she did her big number called Push a Button or... Push the Button. Push the Button. I have to say I was not overwhelmed. Mm. Well, first of all, it was television. And secondly, the television director was taking liberties with camera angles, so you couldn't quite get the full stage picture. It was out of context completely. There was no setup for it. There was, they just sort of did the number after she did an interview uh, with him. So I, I, was, I was underwhelmed by the, the production number, but I was happy to read just a day or two later that the reviews were pretty stupendous. You know, my mother used a lot of aluminum cookware when I was a child, which is sometimes why I have holes in my memory. But I'm now remembering that Seeley was played by Cynthia Erivo. And this is her Broadway debut. Her Broadway debut. Broadway debut. She's British. And the boys, she must have been thrilled by the uh, reviews. The other show that opened, and these reviews surprised the heck out of me, School of Rock, the Andrew Lloyd Webber show about the kids and it's the adaptation of the uh, Jack Black film, surprised the heck out of me. They were A-plus reviews across the board, pretty much. It's at the Winter Garden Theater, home of, longtime home of Cats. So it 
probably is going to sit there for a while. I don't know how they're going to keep replacing all those young kids, continually auditioning and uh, getting new replacements in the wings so that when these kids just get a couple of years older or they have to go off to college, they have to really change the cast. But that show did very well. Made me want to see it. Did it really? It did. Wow. We talked about this at some length last podcast. There's finally going to be a sit-down production of something in Chicago after Million Dollar Quartet has closed, starting in 2016. You know this as well as I do. Hamilton is going to open its tour here, and they are going to sit down in Chicago at the Private Bank Theater. Well, you and I still call it the Schubert. The Schubert Theater. It's going to be at the Schubert Theater, and they are going to be here for quite some time. They open on the 27th of September. Tickets probably are going to be going on sale fairly soon. The excitement about it is palpable in town. They chose a perfect time to announce it, right during the holiday season, and people are just standing in front of the Schubert Theater, looking at the posters they have up in the windows. Very, very exciting. And long overdue that Chicago gets another production like that. Some Booth One experiences that I've had recently. The first one was that our producer and myself went to the Lyric Opera the other day. And we were fortunate enough to be invited to the final dress rehearsal of their brand new five years in the making opera, original opera called Bel Canto, which is the adaptation of the Anne Paget novel. We had seats in the fifth row. <laughs> oh, go on with you. You've not, I didn't know a word about the, I'm learning this all just now. How can you get more booth one than that? On the aisle, could not have been more spectacular seats. Two rows in front of us were the former executive director of Lyric Opera, Bill Mason, and the current executive director of the opera. Uh, Anthony Freud. And then a couple of people are standing in the aisle next to us before it starts, and they're chatting, and they're loud, and they're all, you know, hugging, and everybody's talking to each other. And and our producer says to me, that's Renee Fleming. (gasps) She's standing right next to us, and she takes a seat across the aisle from us. Right behind her are three gentlemen, and she turns and she kisses them all on the cheek. And I said, those guys look to be part of the artistic staff. Sure enough, it turned out to be the composer and the librettist, all sitting within eight feet of us. Well, it was a spectacular afternoon. It was a two o'clock afternoon. They always do these things on like a Thursday or a Friday. And if you're lucky enough to be on a list somewhere, you can get invited to this final dress rehearsal. This show was really spectacular. For those of our listeners who don't know what Bel Canto is about, briefly, it's it's a little disturbing, and it's a little disturbing in these times and in this context. Belcanto is based on a true story uh, of a terrorist attack on an embassy. Belcanto is a fictionalization of that. It is a realization of these 14 terrorists who took over a very posh party at a mansion, and they took 72 people hostage, and they were in there for 126 days. Oh, my Lord. The opera that we saw is absolutely modern day. It could not be more up-to-date. And when those terrorists 
break in uh, right towards the beginning as the lead character who is a mezzo-soprano, a world-famous mezzo-soprano. In fact, it's said that it was modeled, that character was modeled on Renee Fleming. When they break in, there's explosions and gunfire and men just run, jumping in through doors and threatening people with AK-47s and machine guns. A little tough to take, but they did it so well. And it's opera. And so you just sort of bought into the whole thing. It was a wonderful, marvelous experience. And we felt truly booth one the entire time. Towards, of course, at the end of the opera, everybody who was sitting across the aisle from us got up and ran down the aisle and ran through an exit door to get up on stage because they all wanted to take their bow. Wow. So suddenly there are the people who were sitting next to us taking their bow. Has it been reviewed? It has been reviewed. In fact, uh, Anthony Tomasini reviewed it in the New York Times yesterday. Very, very good notices. But they've been working on this production for and, and five to op- years. And to open now in the middle of all of this terrorism that we're experiencing around the world. Very crazy, wasn't it? Crazy. We talked about Michael Shannon last week, where you had gone to see him in a play. I just want to give a big shout-out. Congratulations, Michael Shannon, on your Golden Globe nomination for the film 99 Homes. Good for him. I had one other Booth One experience that I need to uh, tell you about, tell our listeners about. You already know about this. I had the wonderful opportunity to go up to a theater in a little town that's just north of here in Waukegan called the Genesee Theater. I used to work at that building. They were showing the film It's a Wonderful Life twice that day on a uh, on film. They had They had gotten the reels, wow. so they were showing that. What I had the opportunity to do was go up and talk to someone who was associated with that movie. Carolyn Grimes was born on July 4th, 1940, and is known as an American actress. She is best known for her role as Zuzu Bailey in It's a Wonderful Life. She was six years old at the time. She's now 75. And she does tour around the country during Christmas time doing little talks and presentations before the showings of It's a Wonderful Life. She has a whole spiel that she does, and she's got memorabilia that she brings, and they put it out in the lobby and things like that. She was kind enough, gracious enough, to agree to sit down with me and do an interview for Booth One. So I went up there uh, last week and uh, sat down with Carolyn Grimes, and I'd like to play a little bit for our listeners. Shall we do that, Roscoe? You should. Hello, Carolyn. Welcome to the Booth One podcast. It's an extraordinary pleasure to have the opportunity to speak with you today. Welcome to Waukegan. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. It's on the lake. It's beautiful. And this theater is just gorgeous. Spectacular, isn't it? Yeah, they did a lovely job restoring it. We're here at the Genesee Theater in Waukegan, where there are showings of It's a Wonderful Life going on today. Now, you played as our listeners have already been told, Zuzu Bailey in the film. And this film was released in 1946. Were you around four years old during the filming, or four or five? I was six when they did the film. How did you come to appear in a Capra film? I assume your parents fostered this foray into acting as a child? Well, actually, my mother was a stage mother. And when I was four years old, she was afraid my father was going to be grafted. So she decided that she couldn't live on the army pay. And she sure didn't want to go to work, so she put me to work. She got me an agent, 
and the agent took me on some interviews. I got some parts, and I started when I was four years old, and I made $75 a day. Good money back then. $75 a day was good mm -hmm. money back then. Did you have to audition for agents, or were agents in Hollywood at that time looking for young child actors who had a certain particular look to them, or a certain, oh, I don't know, uh, confident quality to them? Well, they had to not be shy. <laughs> and you were not shy? I was not shy. Not a shy young lady? <laughs> no, my mother started me with piano when I was three, violin when I was five. I had acting lessons, singing lessons, dancing lessons, everything there was, I had. And you grew up in Hollywood. And I grew up. And, and actually, that was the industry of the day. Um, everybody was in the, connected with that business in some one way or another. So it wasn't really unusual for kids to be, you know, in the movie. And we were all day players, so, you know, they'd be gone a couple of days from school. That's the way it was. Do you remember your audition for Frank Capra for this film at all? Well, back then, we really didn't audition. We interviewed. And we had a portfolio that we would bring. And there'd maybe be five girls, four, something like that. Because we all had the same agent at that time, pretty much. Her name was Lola Moore. Mm -hmm. And all four of us Bailey kids had the same agent. No kidding. Wow, a real family affair. She made quite some commissions on she you did. all just from that film alone. Well, she was a good agent. She was the kid agent during that time. She was known for that. And um, she was Aunt Lola, we called her. And uh, she'd give us a gift whenever we finished filming each time. She just, you know, was kind of like family. And um, in the studio, we'd call her and they said, we need a blonde, freckled, blue-eyed kid. And she'd go through her stable and send us out, and then we'd go for the interview. Now, you'd interview with one-on-one. -on -one. You'd go into the office, and it would be with the casting director or Frank Capra. He handpicked me. I interviewed with him. You got handpicked by, by Mr. Capra yes, for this film. Mm -hmm. yeah. That's a wonderful story. <laughs> um, around 1940, uh, the basis for this film is a story called The Greatest Gift, and it was optioned by RKO Pictures at that time as a potential vehicle for Cary Grant. Yes, uh, that deal really never worked out, and the script kind of floated around Hollywood for a while, as scripts tend to do. However, you went on to appear in another picture with Mr. Grant that became a holiday classic. Tell us about that. This is extraordinary that you're in both these. What picture was that? That picture was The Bishop's Wife, and it starred Cary Grant, David Nevin, and Loretta Young. And I played Cary, uh, David Nevin and Loretta Young's little girl, Debbie. Uh, little Debbie. And working with Dudley the Angel, I mean, always great. <laughs> <laughs> and, of course, I had a bigger part in that movie than I did. Yeah, without question, many speaking lines. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so uh, everybody watches that one for Christmas, too, because it's such a, it has a wonderful story. It's about, it's about ego and, you know, material things and, mm. and what, what choices you make and, and things like that. I think it's a wonderful movie. It's it one is. of my favorite. Monty Bully. Oh, he was so it's great. one of my favorite holiday films. Speaking of holiday films, besides It's a Wonderful Life, which I'm sure... Is your favorite? What What's your other favorite two or three holiday movies that you enjoy watching? Well, I like National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. <laughs> <laughs> I have to watch it every Christmas. Oh, well, that's fantastic! Squirrel, ah, squirrel, yeah, that's great. I love it. That's I love fantastic. It. There's a scene where I'm in it too, and that 
Where the boy's watching It's a Wonderful Life. The little boy, Auntie. Right, they're watching It's a Wonderful yeah. Life. But I love that movie. I do. Gets... I like Bad Santa, too. Oh, Bad Santa. I like Billy Bob Thornton. And I, I am writing those down. So I, I've got to watch Bad Santa again because I haven't seen that in years. And National Lampoon's Chris, uh, Christmas oh, Vacation. Let's go back to when you were filming uh, It's a Wonderful Life and your agent had gotten you this, this part. Frank Capra handpicked you. You had a few lines in the film. How did you, at, at the tender age of six, how did you rehearse those lines? Were you, was it really just kind of memorization? Did your mother uh, rehearse them with you? Did you rehearse them on the set? What was the working atmosphere like? Well, my mother would because I didn't read at that time, mm -hmm. my mother would um, help me memorize the lines the night before whenever I would shoot a scene. And we'd get a call sheet telling us, you know, what scene they're going to shoot, and we'd get a little script, and we'd just memorize it. You know, when you're a kid, your mind is like a sponge, and you can just soak it all up. So she would enter, take her time, sit down, and tell me what to say. And she would, you know, make me memorize that. And it was easy. I mean, golly gee, I couldn't do that today. <laughs> At that age, as you say, you're a sponge, and you, you, and just, you just pick stuff up as soon as people, they read it to you twice, and mm -hmm. you've got it. And that's the way it worked. The names of your siblings in that movie were Tommy, and remind me of the others. Janie, Janie. and Petey. Pretty normal names. Mm -hmm. Where did the name Zuzu come from? Is that a nickname? Um... It was, there was a product made in the early 1900s, and it was called Zuzu's Ginger Snaps. And um, My little ginger snaps. Yes, it was made by the National Biscuit Company. It was a cookie. And so there was a little female clown with blonde hair on the outside of the packages. And when you talk about the greatest gift, um, when it finally got into Capper's hands, and he hired three screenwriters, and one of them was Clifford Odette who did a lot of uh, film um, stage plays. And uh, he's the one that put Zuzu in the script. And in his screen version, she had a much bigger part. <laughs> really? Have you seen uh, that version of that script, or you just yes. know that you, yes. you have? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah. And so I know that, that, you know, that's where he got the name Zuzu, was from Clifford Odette. That's... Uh an amazing story that I'm sure not very many people have ever, ever heard. He's un, uncredited, of course, oh, uh, on oh, this yeah, on yeah. this film. Well, but. well Capper bought their versions, and then he closeted himself up in his casita at uh, La Quinta in um, Palm Springs, and he stayed there until he took their scripts and made his own script, you know, with, you know, mixing all together. Not, uh, not unusual at the time oh, no, in Hollywood, no, that's, that's uh, especially with these auteur directors oh, who would say, I'm going to make this my own, but mm -hmm. I'm going to take some other material yes. first of all. Yeah. Uh, I was in a hotel lobby the other day, and they had this very large video screen made up of smaller video screens. It was huge. It must have been 12 feet by 12 feet. And they were running in a loop, a colorized version of It's a Wonderful Life. So my question to you, which do you prefer, black color. and white? You like the colored I version. Love the color. Why is that? Because it's real. You can see things so much clearer. Because it's been digitally remastered by Legend Films in uh, San Diego. They did a fabulous job. And it's gorgeous. It, you can see the background. 
they see things you've never seen before, like the animals in Uncle Billy's office. You can see the backgrounds of things. You can see um, the expressions on the faces so much better. And it just, it just pops up at me. I love it. I absolutely love it. And I, I recommend to people, give it a try. Because there's a lot of people that are dying in the wool, you know, black. Traditionalists yes, absolutely yes, wouldn't would never dream of watching it. It gives you a whole different concept, and I, I've seen things like, for instance, um, when George is going up the stairs and he pulls off the noodle post and he has it on on me. Well, just as he's going up those stairs, Mary is wallpapered, and uh, so there's empty sheetrock there, and somebody has drawn a picture of Potter in his wheelchair, and it says Potter. And you can't see that in the black and white version. You lost your mother and father at a fairly young age. Uh, You were probably, what, 14 or 15 at the time. Were you wanting to pursue an acting career in the pictures then? You'd you'd appeared in a number of of films, including It's a Wonderful Life and The Bishop's Wife. What what happened to sidetrack your budding career? And was it a budding career? Were you wanting to make a career as an actress in Hollywood? I was so young when I started, I didn't know anything different. And my mother um, was about, I was eight when she started getting sick. And you have to have a pushy stage mother to get you out there and keep you going in front of people. And that didn't happen. So gradually, I began to have a normal life. And there was no burning desire in me to be an actress. The only part I ever tried out for that I really, really wanted was Annette Funicello's part on the Mickey Mouse Club. <laughs> oh, no, and you didn't get that. I didn't get it. No, I I kind of didn't think I would because I could sing, I can act, but I could never dance. I am not coordinated, and I didn't get the part. She I could th- do it all. I think Carolyn would have been a wonderful name oh, for a mouseketeer. <laughs> you said something in your pre- show or pre-screening talk just a little while ago and I was listening to off stage. you said something that astonished me. You were six when this film was made and as you did say, it was not a big box office success. Mm-hmm. It was actually put in the can and stored away for many, many years because nobody thought they could make any money off of it until the copyright ran out and it got picked up by syndicated television because they were always looking for content. And they thought, well, here's a Christmas holiday movie. We can just show this. You did not see this film until when? <laughs> I was 40 years old before I saw the film. <laughs> so 34 years later, but you yeah, finally saw, saw the, the movie. <laughs> that would have been, what, in the 70s, 1980? 1980. Mm-hmm. That's when I first saw it. And you finally watched it uh, on TV, I assume? Yes. What, what prompted you at that point to finally watch well, this movie? I was getting uh, requests for interviews, and I thought, what? <laughs> interviews for this movie? So many years later, I mean, my movie career was in the basement, in trunks, in boxes. I never even thought about it, you know? My fa- Maybe once in a while, my kids would take a picture to show and tell when they were real little, but that was about it. And so when this happened, I'm like, well, I, I was astonished that people were sending me fan mail. They couldn't believe it because I was out of Hollywood a long time. So I started sending them 
real, authentic, original photos. <laughs> you, you actually let those out of your possession and you sent them real still shots? I did. I didn't know the difference. I thought, well, you know, this is going to be a flash in the pan thing. Did you sign them? Of course, yeah. So somebody out there, many There's people out there people have original studio black and whites. Yes, yes. And so finally, there was a collector and he um, contacted me and sort of became my friend. He didn't live too far away. And he actually sat me down and said, okay, this is happening thing. It's going to continue to go on. And you can't do the original <laughs> pictures anymore. And so he had, had some made off of one of the original pictures and gave them to me. He said, you hang on to those original pictures and you get these out. And that's what you do. So, Other actors from the film who were still surviving became known and also became popular. You mentioned something about uh, the Target Corporation, yeah. Target Stores, mm -hmm. putting together a tour of you and the other sibling members, mm -hmm. Tommy and Janie and Petey. And you, you kind of toured the United States with that yeah. for a while, did you? Yeah. And did you sign... DVDs or, or tapes of the movie? I don't know, Everything. 1980, they didn't Everything. have DVDs, yeah. They had, um, Target had a whole line of products, and so we were ma mainly signing those products. <laughs> but it was very fun, and I mean, they had everything. They had, you know, the village pieces, and they had all kinds of cups, and they had plates, and they had placemats, and the, t the whole stores were filled with all this wonderful life stuff. Awesome. And today, that is rare. I mean, it you is. don't see that stuff. People have collected it, and you don't even see it on eBay or anything. You no, know, you, you don't. It's really amazing. You don't anymore. Well, you if you... a calendar? Yes. Mm -hmm. They really did. Well, there are trends in these things. You know, uh, the popularity rises and falls, but this movie's popularity will never fail. I don't think so. I think it's going to stay... Uh, collector's market forever because it's, it's so beloved by so many people. You were in Seneca Falls, New York, which was, in fact, it's been said, Capra's inspiration for Bedford Falls uh, of the film. And in 2000, you cut the ribbon on the opening of the It's a Wonderful Life Museum. So if no, people... 2010. 2010. Mm -hmm. So if people go to Seneca Falls, what, what kind of things will they find at the It's a Wonderful Life Museum? Well, they will find 250 of my items of memorabilia. Uh, sometimes that's a little over, there's more than that. But uh, they'll find other collectibles from other collectors. And, and there's one here in Chicago, Rich mm. Goodson. He has an enormous collection of original items. And you'll find that. You'll find exhibits on Donna Reed. She was an activist for Mothers of Peace. Uh, there's just so many things that they have focused on, and it all blends together and comes together. And I think, th uh, I do believe that um, Seneca Falls was the place where Frank Capra got his inspiration for the movie. I talked to a, a barber who is no longer with us, he's gotten his wings, but he cut Frank Capra's hair. And he remembers it distinctly because <clears throat> Frank Capra came in and said he was visiting his aunt. And... Um, Tommy Bellissimo was the barber. His name means beautiful. Yes. Capra means goat. Really? So he never forgot the goat. <laughs> and then he saw later that he made the movie, It's a Wonderful Life, so he realized yeah. whose hair he cut. And that's, you know, that, that was a real fellow that saw him there. 
So. And you met this barber in Seneca Falls? Yes, I did. Yeah, yeah. I talked to him a number of years. Um, I've been going there for 15 years. But it's a wonderful life festival. It's upstate, is it? Is uh, How it's, far it's, away it's from New York City? Close to Syracuse. Very it's close to Syracuse. Area. Beautiful part of the country. You see, it's right in the center of Elmira and Rochester and Buffalo. Do you recall, speaking of, of, of Frank Capra again, do you recall any direction that Frank Capra gave you about Zuzu's pedal scenes in the picture? Um, you, I know you were only six. What sort of direction were you, were you given? You know, I don't remember anything about that mm -hmm. scene, that that segment that he gave me any direction. I, I don't remember that he did. It, at least it doesn't stand out in my mind. But when I ran out to see my daddy on the stairs, when he came back, and I said, Daddy, Daddy, he did get down on his knees and talk to me eye level. And he said, now I want you to think about how you'd feel if your daddy'd been gone a long, long time. And all of a sudden he came home. Wouldn't you be happy to see him? That's what I want to see you do. And that's how I want you to act. You know, that's, I remember that. So that's a beautiful, simple piece of direction <laughs> yes. for, for a young lady. Yeah. Uh, what about the closing shot of you in Jimmy Stewart's arms and you're all singing Old Lang Syne? Oh. Did you, were, was everybody told how to sing that? Did you have musical rehearsals or what? I don't think any of us knew how to sing it. <laughs> No, we didn't know how to sing it at all. And um, I was always embarrassed, still I am, because I'm acting like I knew how to sing it and blah, 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 and loudly making a fool of myself. And I was sorry he didn't teach me the words, but I don't think Jimmy Stewart knew the words either because he laughs at me so he doesn't have to sing. Well, you're the perfect six-year-old in that. You're not necessarily supposed to know the words to that song. You're supposed to just enjoy the music and the singing and the fact that, wow, everybody in the room is really happy. I think I'll be happy, too. I shouldn't have tried to sing it then. I should have just shut up. <laughs> Indeed. Um, Carolyn, we, we do something with our guests pretty often that our listeners very much like. There's a game called Chat Pack, which is just a series of questions that are meant to maybe elicit something more personal from our guests that possibly I couldn't even imagine asking or you couldn't even imagine telling me. I wonder if you'd be uh, amenable to just playing this a couple of times with me. I have these cards, so I'm going to hold these out for you, and you just pick one, any one at all. Okay. Let's see what that says on the other side. What was your favorite thing to pretend when you were a young child. Oh, well, that's I interesting. I I was Teresa a nun. Teresa a nun. Mm -hmm. Were you brought up Roman Catholic? No. Did you just feel like that was a cool thing to be? Well, I had a neighbor that was a devout Catholic and uh, one of her aunts was a nun and they just fascinated me so much because they wore the, the, the black and didn't show their hair. The habits yeah. and, the, and the veil, the wimples, oh, yeah. I, I, in the Catholic religion, I went to church with her, and I was just enthralled with that religion. It was so beautiful. And at that time, it was in Latin, and of course, that was really fun to, to be a part of that. Did you ever dress up as a nun, uh, like for Halloween? Yes, yes. I made my mother really? <laughs> made me costumes to be a nun. <laughs> and, and Teresa, you actually gave yourself a name. Oh, yes, Teresa. Very famous um, Saint Teresa. Would you mind playing another one with oh, us? Sure. Fantastic. <laughs> See, these aren't so hard. Oh, not at all. 
If you could bring to life any fictional character from a book or movie, whom would you choose? Well, I, I don't know. I probably might choose Dorothy from The Wizard of Oz. Uh, I think she had kind of a, an interesting life. I think she, she would have been an interesting person for me to be a little bug on her shoulder and see how she was. <laughs> That's interesting. Do you live in Kansas now? Are you uh, from no, Kansas? Seattle. Seattle. Um, I, I know that you're in the Missouri Hall of Fame or some oh, such Kansas. type of thing, right? Yeah. Can't, yes. Well, I it, lived there for a good, good many years. Bringing up children um, all yeah. those years? Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think that I would probably want to bring to life Sherlock Holmes. I'm, I've, I'm fascinated with him as a character, and Brilliant. I'd want to know that a person like that really does exist <laughs> and is walking around. Do you like Cumberland? Do I like um, Benedict Cumberbatch? I do, very, very much. He's my favorite. He's quite the actor, isn't oh, he? Oh, that's my favorite Sherlock Holmes that ever... Oh, I love it, love it. Basil Rathbone, wasn't he? Wasn't he? he was the one in all of the movies yes, that everybody yes. kind of knows. Back in the day, we watched him, but uh, I mean, it, it, this is a contemporary Sherlock Holmes. Ooh, ooh, right. Do you have time to play just one sure. more with us? Fantastic. Go ahead, pick another one. If you could open your own retail store, what type of merchandise would you sell? It's a Wonderful Life memorabilia. Well, of course. Christmas store. I have a Christmas store in the New York section. Do you think you could have a Christmas store 365 days a year? Yes. Do you think you could yes. have that spirit going? Yes. Oh, I would love that. I would love it, love it, love it. Because, I mean, I'm one of these people that wants to leave a tree up year-round. <laughs> Or more trees. So you put your tree up probably before Thanksgiving oh, or something. Oh, oh um, my, my tree went up in, in September. <laughs> I see. Right after Labor Day? Yeah. Uh, I don't have time. <laughs> and you leave it up until, like, the snow begins to melt or something? Well, I take it down about February. February. Uh -huh. Valentine's Day. Yeah. yeah. That's about right. So you're, you're a Christmas nut. You just love, really the love Christmas. Christmas. I love it. Yeah. And I always have. Even before I um, sort of had a second uh, start at a career in a Christmas movie. No, I, I, I was always a Christmas nut. I loved Christmas, even when I was a little kid. Um, I just loved Christmas, and I liked to wrap all the presents, and liked to decorate, and all that sort of thing. I loved to cook, the cookies and the candy, and it was, when raising my children, it was custom. We had traditions that we always did. And, right. It was all about family, and I love Christmas, right. so I think it'd be wonderful to have a Christmas store and sell Christmas ornaments and trees and all kinds of things. Well, being with you today has put me into the Christmas spirit. You're a generous, lovely, and talented lady, and I feel very inspired for the holidays. I'm glad to hear that. Carolyn Grimes, thank you for spending time with us on Booth One today. I really appreciate it. It was great. Enjoy the rest of your tour. Where are you off to, by the way, uh, tomorrow? To the um, Allied First Bank in Oswego. What the Allied First Bank has that is really unique, they give people a second chance for a wonderful life. And they have a Zuzu loan. <sighs> has little wings on it. 
Isn't that incredible? That's really <laughs> wonderful. I'm just so excited. And that's tomorrow? That's tomorrow and the next day. Two days I go to that. Fantastic. Well, good luck out there. Congratulations on your continued success in promoting this film and promoting the Christmas spirit in general. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Carolyn. Well, I have to say, it was really, really thrilling to be in her presence. I know she's not a giant movie star, but the connection that she has to what is an iconic film was just, it was palpable in the room. I, I, I wanted to touch her because <laughs> I know that Frank Capra had touched her and I know that she'd been held up in Jimmy Stewart's arms and I know that she had had Zuzu's pedals in her pocket. Did you, yeah, uh, did you like that? She was charming and, and I'm sorry I wasn't there. And she, she sounds like she's 35 years old. She has a very youthful voice and, and a lot of joy in her demeanor. And as you heard, you know, she, she lives for Christmas. Um, yes. So this is her favorite time of year. And you could tell that she was full of excitement and anticipation and was just so happy to be in front of people talking about this movie. She's really grasped onto this second career of hers, for sure, after serving many years as a mother and, uh, and raising children in Missouri and Kansas and not being near show business or near this movie for a very long time. Now she's embraced it 100%. And it's always thrilling, even when, when they're not stars, just someone who was part of a major cultural milestone. I remember being somewhere at something once where one of the, uh, one of the other Tarleton twin, who wasn't George Reeves, he was there. And here's blah, 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 who was one of the Tarleton twins in Gone with the Wind. Well, my gosh, how thrilling. How, you know, I've seen that opening sequence with, in Gone with the Wind, you know, 150 times. Yeah, yeah. So to see them live and in person is, is thrilling. And yeah. she was sweet and funny, and, and I, you did a great job. We've been telling our listeners to send us their Booth One photos by mailing our website or sharing on Facebook. We welcome any photos or postings you'd like to send us through our website at www.booth-one.com or by Facebook. One of our listeners has sent us something, and you can see it on our website. If it's not up now, it will be up soon. Marie Noble, friend of the show, she works for Skybridge Capital in New York. She and her office mates had a Christmas party at a restaurant called Hunt and Fish Fantastic. <laughs> like in New York City. And who, would, who shows up to sing a number? Andrea Bocelli. No. Shows up. To their Christmas party? Just walks in, says hello, sits down at the piano and sings Ave Maria. Now, oh. that's a mic drop moment. Did he just happen to be walking by, or did they, they hired him? Well, the story now, as I understand it, is that one of the partners of the firm owns or is a co-owner of Hunt and Fish and also is a big fan and somewhat acquaintance of Andrea Bocelli, and he, had, he talked him into stopping by and entertaining the troops. Oh, my God, how thrilling. For my Christmas party was lukewarm burritos and a bad sound system in the background. I got a signed eight and a half by 11 black and white photograph of It's a Wonderful Life from Carolyn Grimes. Well, that's pretty thrilling. Which we're sending to our producer's brother, Michael Park Ingram, also friend of the show. Hi, Michael. We're going to send him this because he's uh, the number one fan of that movie. <laughs> it's it's going to be it's, the greatest. It's proving there are advantages, yet another advantage of living a life in Booth One. It's, it's going to be the greatest Christmas present he's ever gotten. It's time to move on to our Kiss of Death segment. Mm. 
Mm. Holly Woodlawn, transgender star of 70s underground films, died at 69 on December 6th. Woodlawn was born Geraldo Santiago Franceschi Rodriguez Donjal. Wow, you did a great job of that. <laughs> in Puerto Rico, thank you. Uh, to an American soldier of German descent and to a native Puerto Rican. And she grew up in Miami where she came out at a very young age. This, this would have been in the 60s. She hitchhiked to New York City in 1962 and adopted the name Holly from the heroine of Breakfast at Tiffany's. Oh, and in 1969, she added the surname Woodlawn from a sign she saw on an episode of I Love Lucy. After changing her name, she began to tell people that she was the heiress to Woodlawn Cemetery. <laughs> 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 now, she's probably best known as the he who was a she in Lou Reed's hit pop song, Walk on the Wild Side. I never knew that. At the age of 16, she said, when most kids were cramming for trigonometry exams, I was turning tricks, living off the streets, and wondering when my next meal was coming. She said in her memoir, her memoir is brilliantly titled, A Low Life in High Heels. Uh, in, uh, by 1969, she had considered sex reassignment surgery, but she decided against it. Woodlawn met Andy Warhol at a screening of his film Flesh in 1968. Through him, she met Jackie Curtis, who cast Woodlawn in her play Heaven Grand and Amber Orbit in the autumn of 1969. But in October, she was given a bit role in a movie called Trash, also uh, being produced by Andy Warhol. But she so impressed the director, Paul Morrissey, that she was given a much larger role. Morrissey liked her so much that he rewrote it so that it would be the lead. She was paid $25 a day during the filming, spending the last days on heroin. This part really shocked me. In October 1970, she received word from the Academy of Motion Pictures, Arts, and Sciences that George Cukor, of all people, supported by others, was petitioning the Academy to nominate her for Best Actress for her work in Trash. Really? Unbelievable. Nothing really ever came of that campaign. In 71, Woodlawn created a stir when she was arrested in New York City after impersonating the wife of the French ambassador to the United Nations. <laughs> <laughs> when arrested, she was taken to the Women's House of Detention, then transferred to a men's facility when her assigned sex at birth was discovered. She always dressed as a woman. In 72, director Robert Kaplan concocted the idea of a movie whose premise would be using a transgender woman as the lead in a film without revealing the sex of the actress. So Woodlawn played a young, starstruck girl hoping for success as an actress in New York City. The film was called Scarecrow in a Garden of Cucumbers. It was a low-budget 16-millimeter film, unsuccessful, but a song from that movie called In the Very Last Row was performed by Bette Midler. Really? I'm not kidding. In 79, she had surrendered to a faltering career, cut her hair, and moved back to her parents' home in Miami, where she worked as a busser at Benihana. Japanese oh, my Steakhouse. Lord. Back in New York in the mid-1980s, she became a featured singer in Gabrielle Rotello's Downtown Dukes and Dives reviews at clubs such as The Limelight and The Palladium and a star of various musicals and reviews mounted by the songwriting and producing team of Scott Whitman and Mark Shaman. For those of you who don't really know who they are, Hairspray was their huge, yes. was their huge hit, along with many, many songs recorded by Bette Midler and lots of other singers. In 1991, she 
published her aforementioned autobiography, The Hollywood Lawn Story, called A Low Life in High Heels. After Warhol's death, she was interviewed frequently on his life and influence, and she said, I was very happy when I gradually became a Warhol superstar. I felt like Elizabeth Taylor. Little did I realize that not only would there be no money, but that your star would flicker for two seconds, and that was it. The drugs, the parties, it was fabulous. Oh. More recently, she acted in Transparent, a U.S. TV series through Amazon, about a transgender father played by actor Jeffrey Tambor. Alexandra Billings is a, also a, featured in that mm-hmm. show. Alexandra Billings is a transgender actress who has deep, deep Chicago roots, and I'm going to read something of hers in just a moment. When Hollywood Lawn appeared in public, she would dress in a dazzling alternative image of Jean Harlow, complete with wig and frosted lipstick. She fancied herself as a glamorous actress. In the opinion of one film critic, Hollywood Lawn especially is something to behold, a comic book mother courage who fancies herself as Marlena Dietrich, but sounds more often like Phil Silvers. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And as I mentioned early on, Lou Reed refers to Woodlawn in his song Walk on the Wild Side, the opening verse of which describes her hitchhiking journey and gender transition. I'm not going to sing this, but I'll recite the lyrics. Holly came from Miami, FLA, hitchhiked her way across the USA, plucked her eyebrows on the way, shaved her legs, and then he was a she. She says, hey, babe, take a walk on the wild side. Alexandra Billings posted this on Facebook. She commented on Holly Woodlawn appearing in an episode of Transparent. And she arrived with feathers and with dignity and with great aplomb and eagerness to do well. And so I stood back, far in the back of the dressing room, as she powdered and lipsticked and fluffed. And her hands waved and her head shook, and yet there was a steadiness in her. There was a gravitas. Here was history. I was standing near the mirrored past, edged with diamonds and roughly finished. It shone brightly and for decades before me, and it was contained in Holly. She carried it well. She told us. She lived. You see, she was a legend, and I was standing right there. I got to tell her how she saved me and how she moved us all and that she was a revolutionary and that the divine sparkle that emanated from the center of her lit up the universe in ways that were unmatched by time. And then she passed away. Suddenly, today ended and she was gone. Hollywood Lawn's spirit has been blown toward the heavens. And let me tell you, the angels will never sing the same songs again. We go on, all of us. We live in the soul of one another. Because you see, that is what makes a legend. The unbridled devotion to continue to become and tell the story of where it all began, no matter what. And so she arrived, and so she left. We remember the legendary Hollywood Lawn, a muse, an actress, an inspiration to many. Hollywood Lawn passed at 69. She was only 69. Yes. So think how young she must have been when, during the Warhol years. So. Yeah, I always knew who Hollywood Lawn was. I mean, she's she's been a, I thought she was a household name, and to think that she ended up, you know, working as a busser at a Japanese steakhouse. Really? Is, yeah. It's unbelievable. Yeah. Did she ever give up heroin, or did that haunt her the rest of her life. I imagine she gave it up when she went to the Benihana. <laughs> Hard to afford heroin on a busboy salary. Sounds like she was in bad shape towards the end if she was yeah. shaking. And Well, interesting. Yeah. Interesting, sad. 
I recommend everyone to go onto their uh, Amazon uh, account if they have one and, and try to find that episode, if not all the episodes of Transparent. Uh, but that one in particular, I, I'm going to definitely have to go and try to watch. Yeah. Merry Christmas, Roscoe. Merry Christmas to you. Have yourself a merry little Christmas. Let your heart be light. And we don't want to be too exclusive. We want to be inclusive. <laughs> it is the middle of Hanukkah. Yes. And we're approaching Kwanzaa. And it is going to be Christmas in another 12 days. Merry Christmas, happy holidays, happy Hanukkah to you, Roscoe. Happy Hanukkah to you. Thank you for tuning in and listening to another episode of Booth One. We'll see you all after the holidays. Take care. 